Hello and welcome to episode number 42 of the Know Your Physio podcast. I'm your host, Andres Perichel, and today's guest is my dearly beloved friend, mentor, and business partner, Dr. Moises Roisenthal. He's a Harvard-trained and world-renowned interventional radiologist and vascular specialist. And on today's show, we go deep on all things hunger, hormones, and lifestyle medicine to prevent disease and revert disease states such as insulin resistance, cardiometabolic syndrome, obesity, and much more. And this is actually, I mean, this podcast is, is, is way overdue. This is a podcast that I've been hoping to do since I first started podcasting over a year ago now. And I, it's just, I, I felt that I needed more practice to really do this substance justice and to do this guest justice. So I'm glad that it turned out to be episode number 42. But Man, what an incredible episode. And actually, we were so giddy after recording this, like just like little kids, just so happy with how this turned out. And the cherry on top, really wrapping all this together so nicely, bringing it full circle, was that we got a notification on WhatsApp from one of our group chats with a patient slash client. And she shared with us how her primary care physician just recommended that she stops taking her high blood pressure medication. So it, it just it just came together so nicely. It was so special to have Dr. Roy on the show. And you can definitely expect him to be back on the show in the near future. And one last thing I want to share before we dive in is I almost called this off today. I almost called off this episode today because I was exhausted. I had some intense meetings early in the day. I was just so exhausted. And I almost pushed this for a few days from now. And believe <laughs> this is not an ad. Believe it or not, I took some ketone esters from the Ketone Aid brand, the most powerful ketone, exogenous ketones in the world. If you want to learn more about them, I did a podcast with Frank Yosa, the CEO of Ketone Aid. We dive deep on the science of ketones, how they work, and why, how rather they can benefit you in, uh, for either a physical endurance event or, a, or a, a, a cognitive endurance event, something like a podcast or a long business meeting. And how they can even help with 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 sleep. So I took some of that, the KE1, 20 milliliters or so. Before the show, I took a cold shower and then I strapped on the Apollo Neuro wearable device. It's like a, a, a very sleek looking biohacking device. It's very low key. And what it does is it creates an audible low frequency sound. You can't hear it, but you can feel it. And then it's compatible with an app. You can select different or rather desired physiological states to elicit. I put it on the clear and focus mode. Actually, I started with the energize and wake up mode for five minutes. And then I set it throughout the duration of the podcast to the clear and focus mode. And I swear this made a world of a difference. And you guys will see it in my performance on the show. Um, I felt like crap and the show turned out to be and excuse my French, but absolutely fucking amazing. So anyway, hope you guys enjoy. I'll see you on the other side. And let me know if you have any more questions for our guest, Dr. Roy. This podcast is powered by Biostrap, the most clinically validated wearable device, health, and sleep tracker. With Biostrap, you can count on research-grade biometric analysis to make the best evidence-based decisions unique to you regarding all things health and fitness. I wear my Biostrap every day. Their HIPAA-compliant platform allows me to monitor exactly how my physiology responds to all of the lifestyle habits, wellness protocols, and biohacks I implement in my daily routine. And through their advanced remote monitoring platform, I get to see the same for the people I follow in app. No matter where my clients, closest friends, or family members are in the world, I can see exactly how their physiology is responding to all my advice recommendations, and everything else that I learned through the awesome guests I get to host on this podcast. It's the ultimate tool for getting to know your physio. For the nerds, aka most of you guys, here is a scientific breakdown of the device that you can surely appreciate. So raw waveform data enables in-depth analysis of your health using powerful cloud-based algorithms. Proprietary red and infrared optimal sensors capture high signal-to-noise and high-resolution photoplethysmography or PPG measurements from deep beneath the skin, up to 10 times deeper than green light to extract reliable biometrics. The proprietary pulse engine assesses each pulse wave versus 29 unique parameters to provide processed data with the highest 
data integrity and reliability. And trending nocturnal biometric data provides the ultimate insight into positive or maladaptive physiological changes. Data integrity is of the utmost importance when relied upon for risk stratification, data-driven decision-making, and progress monitoring. Biostrap is referenced in 14 publications and 22 clinical studies validating biometric measurements against gold standard medical diagnostic equipment and applied use cases for specific medical conditions. When it comes to your personal health, fitness, and performance, it counts to interpret and apply only the most reliable evidence-based data unique to you. That's why I choose Biostrap and why I recommend it invariably to all my friends, family, clients, fans, and followers who are curious about their biometric data as they get to know their physio. So you can go to biostrap.com and use code UNDRESS10 to get 10% off your entire order. That's biostrap.com, B-I-O-S-T-R-A-P.com and use code UNDRESS10 a-N-D-R-E-S and the number 10 to get 10% off your entire order. One more time, that's biostrap.com, B-I-O-S-T-R-A-P.com, code Andres10 for 10% off your entire order. Hope you guys enjoy, and I'll see you on the other side. Here we are back on the Know Your Physio podcast with Dr. Roy. Finally got Dr. Roy, my beloved business partner and mentor here on the show. Welcome, Dr. Roy. It's, it's so nice to have you here with us. Thank you. It's really my pleasure to be here. Awesome. Can you tell us a little bit about why someone like you started working with someone like me? Why did we become partners? <laughs> Actually, <laughs> before you do that, before you do that, if you can share with my audience, share your credentials with us. All right. Well, shortly, I, I did medical school in Venezuela, then moved to Boston for six years where I did my residency program in Harvard. I did radiology there, then moved to Miami to do a fellowship in vascular medicine and vascular and interventional radiology at the Miami Cardiac and Vascular Institute, and then went back home to Venezuela to work for I would say 17 years, I founded a uh, vascular and interventional radiology department in a big clinic there, uh, joined in a few societies, a Society of Interventional Radiology of Latin America, of Iberoamerica, called SIR. Then I became a fellow of the Society of Interventional Radiology in North America and decided to move back to the States seven years ago. So I'm practicing right now vascular and interventional radiology, and I became board certified. Of course, I'm board certified in vascular interventional radiology, but I became board certified in obesity medicine a few years ago back here in the States. Wonderful. And can you sort of paint the picture of what your day-to-day is like? What kind of interventions are you doing? How do you work with your patients? How do you help your patients? I work full-time opening arteries, essentially. I do many procedures through the arteries and veins, and of course I do some other procedures outside the veins, but mostly I do, and I work on uh, the arteries of the legs, the kidneys, carotids. I stopped doing uh, neurointerventional radiology because uh, now there's a full specialty on neuroradiology, so I do it. I do. I go essentially in every single artery except the coronary arteries and the brain. And uh, over the last 20 years, I've been dealing with the complications of cardiovascular disease coming from diabetes, obesity, and smoking. Those are the major disease, the major cause of cardiovascular disease which I'm involved in it on a daily basis. That's what I do every single day, treating the complications of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and, and obesity. So you tend to treat disease states that occur mostly as a result of poor lifestyle habits that people maintain chronically over the course of many, many years. Eventually, they develop these kinds of complications, and you're there as an interventionist to literally unclog arteries, right? Exactly right. Exactly right. I, I, until recently, I just, 
I was working only on the consequences, on the complications and not on prevention of all those. Yep, you're right. Right. So now, so now you're focused on the preventative end of these complications. And that's what we do together. But can you, can you share with us perhaps why did you make that shift? You know, someone with your background who studied so much, who's taken up leadership roles, you know, you have your practice now, you have, you have people underneath you. You have this huge involvement and this huge presence in the world of medicine and, and radiology. You know, why are you making this shift now towards prevention and lifestyle medicine? It's, uh, I would say, frustrating to see every single day patients that are sick and that I can help with their complication, but I was frustrated that I really was not helping on preventing them of coming back or even preventing the disease to happen overall. It all came together, and actually that happened when you came to my office to do sort of an internship, deciding if you're going to go to medical school or what you're doing right now, that a brand new procedure was in my specialty, which is called bariatric embolization. It's just stopping the blood flow to the stomach where the ghrelin, the hunger hormone is produced, and the patient, in the first few articles published, the patient will be without, not being hungry throughout the day, and they will lose weight. So it's a procedure that I've been doing for 20 years for, for upper GI bleeding, and it's easy for me to do, but I needed to learn how to apply really that old procedure to this new indication, which is losing weight and being without hunger. So I decided to take the opportunity to start learning how to do, deal with the indication for the procedure, do the procedure, help patients to lose weight, but also help patients. I realized that I can help patients improve from their diabetes or even cure type 2 diabetes, improve their risk factors for cardiovascular disease, improve, of course, fatty liver, improve obesity, and then, you know, studying obesity medicine, improve all that goes along with it, sleep, stress, understanding your body, understanding your hormones, and try to build a team and help the patient. Overall, coincidentally, you're in my office and we're talking about all these things. I don't think things. it's any coincidence. I know that you're a fan of Joe Dispenza in the fifth dimension. <laughs> and I don't think there was any coincidence. Exactly. It, <laughs> yeah, it was, it, it, was, it was a coincidence, let's put it that way, quote unquote. But you were meant to be here at that time. And it all just clicked in. Of course, your passion for wellness and health and me moving towards prevention and not getting tired of treating complications, but trying to move forward for prevent disease, help patients get better, or even helping stop taking medication for diabetes, for example, or helping people lose weight, not only doing the procedure, but also having a weight loss program, made me really move towards, not, not that I'm stopping opening arteries and doing interventions, of course I'm not, but I am definitely doing a lot more prevention than ever in, 20, in more than 20 years in my career, ever. Yeah, and, and the third element of that, you know, beyond having discovered this procedure by accident that you were very excited about and I using it as a weight loss intervention beyond me being an intern in your office, there was a third element that really brought this together um, simultaneous to that and unbeknownst, and unbeknownst to me, which was that you were also dealing with fatty liver disease and you were now making lifestyle changes to revert that disease state for yourself. So it was, you had a procedure that you were doing. I was there in the office kind of promoting this or, or rather being passionate about it and which you picked up on. And then on top of that, I guess, I guess you were receptive to that because you had been dealing with this on your own. Could you tell us a little more about that third element about your experience with being overweight and suffering with fatty liver disease? I had... I would say the whole metabolic syndrome. I had elevated liver enzymes from fatty liver. I am a hypertensive for for the last 30 years, I would say. Of course, I was overweight. My blood sugar wasn't high, but wasn't the limit. So I had the full metabolic syndrome for which I was taking medication, medication for high blood pressure. There's not much medication for fatty liver. I was about to start medication for diabetes. 
Then, well, reading and, and taking things on my own to cure my fatty liver, I applied all this new knowledge upon myself and on my patients as well. And, well, in years found that the treatment for metabolic syndrome is not taking pills. Of course, there are a few drugs that will help but you can lower your cholesterol, you can lower your triglycerides, you can increase your HDL, you can lower your liver enzymes, you can lower the amount of fat that you store in, in the liver and in between viscera and bowel, which is a visceral fat, which is highly inflammatory. All that with new health habits, new ways of eating and exercising, and improving sleep, and improving stress as the best medicine for all, which during medical school, we were not trained for it whatsoever. I was trained to just high cholesterol, give some statins, high glucose, borderline or so, give metformin, uh, liver issues, well, don't drink, try to lose some weight, but putting all together, nothing was really working until the time I learned that with eating strategies, know what to eat, when to eat, what not to eat, and what type of exercise, uh, I think I cured myself. I cured my fatty liver for sure, my hypercholesterolemia. I stopped taking statins. I lowered the number of drugs that I take for high blood pressure, and my weight is better now than it has been for the last 20 years. So it's a pretty cheap but not easy treatment to treat all these metabolic syndrome components. Right. So, so in, in med school, you were taught to diagnose and to provide some kind of invasive intervention, an array, or, of, or non-invasive. Right. Right. But or but, non-invasive medication, or medication, which we call that non-invasive. But, but uh, yeah, medication and interventions. Yeah, I think I think some people tuning into this podcast would probably say that even medication would be an intervention. You know, <laughs> adding in something yeah, kind of synthetic I'm with substance you. It is, the body. Actually. Yeah. So, so can you tell us, for example, you know, now that you sort of made these lifestyle shifts, how would you say that your lifestyle right now, how different is it to your lifestyle, let's say five or 10 years ago? You know, what kind of things are you doing differently? What kind of medications are you or aren't you taking? I know you mentioned some of them just now briefly, but really let's talk more about the, the, the lifestyle shifts as a whole. And if you can speak on behalf of your overall quality of life, your performance, how that's changed as well. Lifestyle is essentially the best medication that I'm taking right now. I'm not taking anything other than some supplements and medication for high blood pressure, but I'm not taking anything else for high glycemia. I'm not taking anything for high cholesterol. So the medication is the lifestyle, and the lifestyle is exercise every morning, I would say five times a week. And at my age now, I believe that I split weightlifting and some cardio 50-50, and I think it's a little more weightlifting nowadays than cardio, to improve my, my muscle mass, which is a metabolic organ, essentially. It's an endocrine organ, in my opinion. So after 50, everybody should be lifting weight. Throughout the life, everybody should be lifting weight, but after 50, it's a must. And of course, I, I swim and I, I do some spinning. I don't ride on the street anymore because that's a little dangerous. And I see your bike back I'm there. Not, I'm not, not road to... cycling anymore. Don't worry. <laughs> well, it's incredible to road cycle, but, but it's, uh, it's I'm going to so have my bike up on the wall to... for a few years before I sell it just like that's, you did. That's a torture. That's torture. <laughs> I sold mine. Every time that I saw it, I wanted to go out. So I decided to sell it. It makes for a good expensive backdrop in the video here. It makes me look like I'm active, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> But it does. It, it is tempting to get back on the bike here in Miami, which is just so dangerous. Yeah. And the lifestyle combination is, of course, nutrition. I never paid much attention to nutrition. I never paid attention to carbs. I never paid attention to not eating five times a day or when I'm hungry. So after studying, you know, obesity medicine and, and learning more about the harm of processed carbs, the harm of sugar, and understanding what what leptin, what ghrelin, what insulin, and cortisol, among many other hormones, those four, and their role in the metabolic health of every individual, I decided to change my, my nutrition as well. So I cut carbs significantly, especially processed carbs. I don't eat pizza and pasta and bread often. 
I don't eat at all donuts and, and junk food. I don't, you know, I really eat very uh, healthy food, meat and, and fish. And I love vegetable salads and so forth. Less alcohol. And, and also the hours of eating, I, I just don't have breakfast because I like the idea of not having any, anything to eat for 16 hours a day. And we can talk about the insulin spikes and what, what benefits are on that, even though it's been debated and some people don't think it's, it's really necessary to, to stop eating for 16 or 18 hours. I believe it helped me quite a bit, not only to lose weight, but to feel less hungry throughout the day. And, uh, and that's it. I mean, new habits on when to eat, what to eat, and what exercise to do. And of course, I, am, I meditate. I learned that from my wife. So I meditate every day. And it helps me quite a bit for stress control. And I take time to improve my sleep. Wonderful. And, and overall, I mean, the, the, as a result, you, would you say you feel a lot better? You feel more energized, more focused? You know, what are some of the benefits of these lifestyle changes? Like, how do you feel? Well, number one, before, before the feeling, objectively, my liver enzymes came back to normal. My liver ultrasound is, I have no fatty liver and ultrasound or in, even a biopsy. I had to do a liver biopsy. So I improved my fatty liver. I improved my weight, my, of course, my fat storage and evidently my cholesterol went almost back to normal with an elevated age. And the triglycerides came down dramatically to below 70. So my numbers improve incredibly just with, uh, with better nutrition, exercise and stress management and sleeping well. All, all the numbers, all my blood work improved dramatically. And then, of course, how I feel my energy, my concentration, my, my daily work improved dramatically. I, I needed a nap always at the end of the day at 4 or 5 p.m. I don't need it anymore. I can exercise much better now than, than 20 years ago. It's incredible. I swim better now. I ride better now. And I lift heavy weights now better than 10 years ago. So putting all the lifestyle together it's it's it's, an, it's incredible and i'm tell, talking about me but this is exactly what's written in the literature and is scientifically proven that works well and a lot of people don't know that and this is what us in our program you and i and dr patricia Jaimes as well teach and and tell our patients and this is how we cure metabolic syndrome and all these diseases that are essentially the first causes of death nowadays, not only in the state, in the United States, but throughout the world. Thank you for sharing that. And, and, and before we get into, you know, the, the hunger hormones and ghrelin, leptin, insulin, cortisol, and such, and how to manipulate them via lifestyle habits and lifestyle changes, can you maybe share with us just a, maybe a one, two, maybe even three of aha moments or an epiphany that you had along your journey or in your practice that really made you kind of reflect back on the years that you spent in medicine that perhaps weren't the best way to prepare you to truly help others to be happier, be healthier, and live longer? Were there any moments that you can think back to where you said, man, I wish I had really learned this in med school, like something very specific, or I wish that we could have done this differently? I, I don't recall a specific moment, but I can tell you that I have a twin brother who has exactly the same thing that I do. And we were both on the same journey, you know, getting more medication for high blood pressure, getting medication for high cholesterol, getting or about to start medication for diabetes at 40, you know, 45, so young with three, four, five medications that uh, once I started doing all this by myself without any medical advice, of course, my medical advice and my own reading, but not from my internal medicine doctor, which I, I respect very much or even my hepatologist who was working on my fatty liver, who I have a huge respect back then, 15 years ago, we're not talking about what to eat or when to eat. We just then eat less fat, eat less fat and eat carbs, a lot of carbs, but the good carbs, but a lot of carbs. So cereal and bread and give me a break. None of that I eat nowadays. 
Right. So the aha moment came now it's the when I learned exactly that the opposite of what physicians and, and, and the Diabetes Society is recommending still nowadays as a best standard American diet, which is sad, standard American diet yeah. is very sad. That is a very sad diet that is still being recommended. So the aha moment came when this I realized that I was on a sad diet. Right. And I changed that that diet to, I would say, the, the new diet. And I, of course, it came on the moment when keto diet started to be really popular. And I started on a keto diet. And I started looking at the, the numbers. My labs were changing dramatically. My energy, my need to sleep during the day, my, you know, of course, my, my size. So that was the aha moment. And, and, and my twin brother followed me and we're both on the same trip right now. Right. So when you have a twin brother, your version of an epiphany is really just asking your twin brother how he's doing. <laughs> exactly. We're so, so almost identical that... Yeah. Uh, hey, bro, how are you uh, feeling? Oh, I, I kind of feel this way too. Maybe we should do something different. <laughs> well, you think about it, it, The truth is that when I was 30, I called him when I was in Harvard on my routine physical exam and I called him and said, listen, brother, you're, you're a hypertensive from now on. What do you mean? High blood pressure. Go ahead and measure yours. It's going to be this and that, and it, it was exactly that. <laughs> and a few years later, I did an abdominal ultrasound, and it was fatty liver. I said, "Brother, you have fatty liver as well," and so forth and so on. So here we are talking about your n equals one, trying to do this uh, anecdotal evidence justice. But in fact, you have a twin brother, so it's an n equals two controlled study. <laughs> and, it is a controlled fact, study. Absolutely, fact, all of these lifestyle changes are are very efficacious. And now you can reflect back on just how much of it is based on the best and latest evidence. So <laughs> there, it really comes full circle. So let's dive into some of these hormones, right, that, that you and I focus on in our team. You know, our project is Hambre y Hormonas, or Hunger and Hormones. Our primary population is the Spanish-speaking population, which is why, as of now, much of our content is in Spanish. Our video courses and our book are in Spanish. And it's because we know, well, just to touch upon this for a second, we know that it's a population that's very much underrepresented in research and, you know, a lot of... These people, they come to the US or Miami where we're based for the majority of our patients, they come here and they become, you know, subjects to, to the SAD diet. And a lot of them will end up obese with metabolic syndrome and, and very unhealthy. And so we wanted to focus on the population and really niche it down. But now we're working with people from all kinds of different backgrounds. You know, no matter where they're from, we can work with them. And now we're developing all of our new content and courses in English as well. But can we get into why we're focusing on hunger hormones. Can you tell us a little bit about, rather, let's have a conversation about these four hormones, why we focus on them, and how you can actually manipulate them via lifestyle change. Is there a particular hormone that you want to start with? Well, let's talk about ghrelin and leptin, and, and let's say first why we are interested in that. If losing weight would be so easy or as easy as eat less, do more exercise, or, you know, it's just being on caloric deficit, eat less calories and, and, and do more exercise to lose more calories. As many people say, including, you know, people that you have had in your podcast, that they see life so easy. Oh, come on, just eat less calories and, and do more exercise. And that's it. Would We would not have been here. I would not have been doing, you know, bariatric embolization surgery, wouldn't be doing surgery on obese patients that many times fail, many times don't. So it is a complex topic. It is a, obesity. It's a complex disease. And uh, to treat it, in my opinion, you really have to understand the pathophysiology of obesity. You have to understand the cause and how to manipulate hormones, for example, that are related to it or all the issues related to it. So, of course, you can teach somebody to eat less calories and do more exercise, they will lose weight. But if the patient understands a little more what is hunger, how to deal with that feeling of hunger, understand what addiction and the feeling of pleasure when you eat means, how to understand the order of your brain that goes to the hypothalamus and overpass everything, when it says don't eat anymore, but you're still hungry or you're still addicted 
to, to carbs, unfortunately, processed carbs, all that is override. And that information doesn't go to the place in, in the hypothalamus where the hunger is manipulated. It. And, and so it, if we try to start talking about the, the hunger hormone, let's start there. Let's start with ghrelin. There are a few hunger hormones, and we're not going to talk about an endocrine you know, book chapter here, but we can talk about what the hunger hormone is, the satiety hormone is, and the most important one for treating, for, for uh, uh, dealing with, with the sugar and, and lipids, and the last one, dealing with stress. That's Those four are the ones that I think we should talk about. Before we start talking about ghrelin, can we just finish? There was a one point that you made earlier about the intervention that you were doing to treat obesity, which was bariatric embolization, where you embolize or essentially burn off the artery that produces ghrelin. So people were less hungry, they would lose weight, but ultimately the surgery failed long-term, right? Because through the same maintaining the same lifestyle habits people had, they would develop collateral arteries around the embolization zone and the ghrelin would come back. So you knew that there had to be a lifestyle intervention for a long-term success of the procedure. And then you discovered through your personal journey and through working with me that ultimately you could avoid that procedure and just focus on the lifestyle to revert the disease state. Right. And and it's not only with the bariatric embolization, it's also with bariatric surgery. Remember that the surgeon will cut the stomach and they will cut the fundus of the stomach where most of the ghrelin is produced and the patient's after bariatric surgery, will feel not only less hungry, but the food doesn't fit. The stomach is tiny. So they will lose weight initially because they, they, the combination of both. They will not be able to eat because the stomach is tiny. They're going to have to vomit if they continue eating. But also they cut the fundus of the stomach and they become less hungry. That can also fail if you don't have a new way of life, a new way of eating, a new way of, of living. That's a, that's major surgery. The one that I do, it's it's minimally invasive. I just cut for a while the ghrelin production, and the patient uses that time of being less hungry, of having less ghrelin on board, to learn all these new habits, to learn all, all this new lifestyle. And if they take advantage of a time without being hungry, three to six months, even more, and you learn what to eat and when to eat and what to do, those patients, the, the procedure is very long-standing, very, very long. I mean, it will last forever. It's the same as surgery. If they learn how to eat and when to eat after any surgery, any surgical bariatric procedure, it will last many years. However, if you don't understand the addictive component of sugar and certain foods. If you don't understand the basics of what ghrelin, leptin, insulin, and cortisol is, it will be hard to keep that lifestyle. It will be hard to understand that. And eventually you're going to start eating because you crave carbs and gain weight and lose the procedures, not only the bariatric embo, but also the bariatric surgery. Right. So, so it's the understanding of those hormones in particular that outfits someone with all the tools, tactics, and know-how that they need to attack hunger when it arises so they can continue on their path towards positive lifestyle change and weight loss. Exactly. With or without help, I mean, with the help of bariatric embolization, with the help of surgery, or with the help or without of medication, there are different medications to improve to try to, to lose weight, and, and still more and more are coming. The bottom line is that it's not easy to learn these new habits. It's not easy to learn this new lifestyle, and it's, of course, especially in the United States, not easy to avoid processed food that goes into the brain and tells you that is incredible and then you produce some neurotransmitters that say wow this is real pleasure it's the same pleasure that smokers feel when they smoke alcoholics feel when they drink and uh, cocaine users feel when they use cocaine they yeah, feel it's, well it's the same but it's terrible because the they get addicted and yeah. it's the same center of addiction in the brain and and of course, they sell sugar all over the place, donuts. I mean, in every corner, there's a donut store. And you stop, you eat it, you feel incredible. And then you're hungry again in two hours. And then if you buy 12 donuts, you will eat 12. 
Yeah, you're exploiting the reward mechanisms of the brain. I mean, that's makes these foods inherently addicting. And there's a lot of debate whether sugar is addicting or not. I mean, the way that we understand it, I have a reason to believe that in fact it is and, and, and so do you, or at least that it has addictive components for particular people and individuals. But I don't want to go too far off into that rabbit hole. Do you mind if we come back to ghrelin? Can you tell us a little more about ghrelin, how it works, where it's produced? I mean, I think people understand now where it's produced, but can you tell us a little bit about how it works and how we help people lower their ghrelin levels and their hunger? It is produced in the stomach and it goes up to the hypothalamus and in the brain and there it regulates the, the need for eating. It's not as simple as that, but if we see it in a simple way, it goes up before eating and it's usually up an hour before eating if you're a regular schedule of having lunch and breakfast and, and dinner. It, of course, increases when you're without eating for a long period of time when you're fasting. So those are the main issues and where it goes up. Of course, it's, if, if patients that don't sleep well will have an increase of, of uh, ghrelin. And uh, people that are very stressed out, it goes up. And so those are the, the main causes of, of having an elevated ghrelin. If, it is, if you want to just stop that hormone action, either with medication, with a procedure, or cutting the stomach, the feel of needing to eat will come down, but not the pleasure of eating. So you have to spread those apart. You need to survive. You eat to survive, and you eat for pleasure. And those things are different. Ghrelin will give you the feel of you have to eat because you have to. And the pleasure of eating a few different things, it's a different story. You can eat candy or you can eat a donut or a bagel or pizza without being hungry. It's just because you, you, you just saw a sign of it or the smell of it and you, you decided to eat it. Not being even hungry because the mechanism of pleasure after eating those is different than the mechanism of ghrelin. But if, of course, if you control the ghrelin production and you understand that you're not hungry and you avoid eating without being hungry, you're going to lose weight and then you're going to learn new habits. Right. So when you understand the mechanisms of ghrelin, you, it gives you the incentive to pursue the habits that reduce it naturally. Exactly. So for example, improving exactly. your sleep, meditating are two great ways. And so we teach people through our program, through our coaching, through our courses, how to do that. We have and I know, this sounds like a, like I'm a salesman now, but it's just true. That's what we that's what we do. We we have an expert in meditation with us, former MD actually, and then we have, we 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 dive deep on the physiology of sleep and how to optimize sleep. So, is there anything else that you want to share on behalf of ghrelin before we move on to the next hormone, leptin? Ghrelin is a very difficult hormone to measure, for example. So I don't want to get the idea of people going out and measure in a blood work. Oh, let's measure my ghrelin to see how high it is. No. In fact, they stopped measuring it. You can, but it's, it's very hard. It goes up and down and different people, depending on their sleep, on their weight, on their hours of eating. So uh, ghrelin is a hormone that you don't really have to measure the exact number, but it's something to keep in mind when you feel hungry or when you feel that it's not hunger, it's anxiety, or it's, or it's a desperate need to eat something uh, as an addiction. Yeah, well, inherently, it's very subjectively present, right? I mean, it's there's no objective. I mean, maybe there are objective ways to measure it, but there is, but it's hard. But it's hard to 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 put the normal limits of it, right? But if you pursue these lifestyle changes instead, you will instantly, pretty much instantly, see that your you know hunger levels without a doubt, absolutely. In fact, yes, perhaps I believe you agree with this. There's a lot of good research that points to to the influence that sleep and stress have on hunger, especially when it comes to hedonic hunger because of the influence in particular that that has on your glycemia and, and glycemic control and insulin sensitivity. And we know that, for example, being hypoglycemic, the state of hypoglycemia following the consumption of processed carbs, just because you overproduce insulin, natural response to an unnatural food, all of a sudden now you're hungry for no reason, right? So we know that these are two behaviors that can drive unwanted hunger. And if we address them via lifestyle change, we can diminish those unwanted cravings. Agreed, 100%. And so would you, so so let's talk a little bit about leptin. I know, and I'll, I'll just to emphasize for people tuning in, 
These are very complex hormones and we're just kind of skimming over the mechanisms and how to address them. But uh, I think it's important to give people, to give everybody even a basic level understanding of these hormones. I think I think it can do a lot for people and really motivate them to pursue these habits. So let's talk a little bit about leptin. What does ghrelin do? Where is it produced? How does it work? Sorry, yeah, leptin, leptin. You mean leptin. Leptin is a, is the satiety hormone. It's it's believe it or not, it's produced in the fatty cells in adipocytes. It, it's produced there. It goes at the same to the hypothalamus and gives the signal that you have eaten enough and satiety comes. You don't have to eat anymore. So it's interesting that if it is produced in the adipocytes, the fatty cells, and uh, obese people have many of those, in fact, significantly more than a non-obese patient, why would they eat so much? Well, the mechanism is called they're resistant to leptin. The leptin in obese people is higher, but it doesn't work well. Also, it happens in people that don't sleep well. There is uh, an issue that will eventually stop leptin from working. You don't get a satiety. You, you have to, if you see big patient, obese patients, overweight patients eating, they they stop eating late. I mean, they, they continue to eat. They, they don't feel the satiety feeling that you have to stop eating even if you have the food in front of you. So leptin is a hormone that will cause satiety, but it's very, the mechanism of of its action is very complex and it's altered in overweight patients, obese patients, of course, patients that don't sleep well and also People that eat too much fructose will change and will alter the the leptin mechanism of satiety. So it is a hormone that you have to understand well and try to find ways to make it work better. Eat less fast, slow, less amount of food and let the food go to your stomach and, and let the leptin work and go to the hypothalamus and tell the hypothalamus, you know what, there's time to stop. And that's why it's called the satiety hormone. But also understand that it's a, it's a hormone that uh, it doesn't work well. Its function doesn't work well in the hypothalamus when patients are overweight or, or, or obese. And one thing I want to add to that, and, and I know that I, I am going to be simplifying some concepts here. And please feel free to jump in and interrupt me if, if maybe I'm oversimplifying to the point where I'm not doing the research justice. But I will actually will touch upon some research after I make this simplified after I get this simplified description. So leptin, like you said, is that body weight set point hormone, right? It's a satiety hormone. Naturally, as our fat stores increase, as we build up more fat, we should see higher levels of satiety. Our body's telling us, hey, we have enough stored fuel in the tank in case we go without food, we have enough. And so it promotes satiety. The thing is that in our modern environments, eating modern food, that's hyper palatable, exploiting the reward systems of our brain. We overeat to the point where our triglycerides become so elevated that they interfere with leptin binding sites, with leptin signaling that contributes to a vicious cycle of obesity, right? Because then we have triglycerides that are so high that leptin can't do its job to tell us that we're satiated. And I actually have a few recommendations uh, based in science. I'm actually going to be citing a couple researchers here of supplements and things that you can do to improve your leptin sensitivity. So when individuals are at their set point, they produce a given amount of leptin and in turn maintain a state of energy balance. That's quote by Friedman et al. 2002. Then leptin sensitivity can be improved and the resistance reversed with aerobic training and inclusion of fish oil, omega-3 fatty acids in the diet because it'll help lower your triglycerides. Yeah. And that's by Dyke et al. in 2005. Then there's some evidence that points to NAD plus playing an important role as it supports the function of the hypothalamic SIRT1 to keep leptin sensitivity high. But of course, we know that NAD plus declines with age naturally. This is uh, a quote by Sasaki et al. 2013. Some of the best ways to support NAD plus to maintain high insulin sensitivity and support our hypothalamic function, as we know, sleep, exercise, fasting, calorie restriction. So there you have it. That's a that's a recipe 
for improving your leptin sensitivity. What are your thoughts there? Absolutely. I'm, I'm with you 100%. It's complex, but but it's that's the way it is. Lovely. And, and those four things need to be all included to improve leptin sensitivity because if, if it is resistant and if it doesn't do its job, the satiety mechanism is crucial. You really have to know when to stop eating, especially if you're used to it a lot. So leptin sensitivity will improve doing exercise, of course, improving your triglycerides, eating extra omega-3, and of course, cutting your carbs, and of course, sleeping. Leptin resistance is very well known in patients who don't sleep well. So all those will improve the leptin sensitivity, which is a satiety hormone. Yeah, and a couple more things I want to add here. There is um, a study that was by Rutgers et al. in 2012. They said something, then I think this, also, this ties in some of the concepts that we described for ghrelin and leptin together. So they said, although physiological and psychological stress is highly subjective to the perception of an individual, acute psychological stress is associated with eating in the absence of hunger, especially in vulnerable individuals characterized by disinhibited eating behavior and sensitivity to chronic stress. And then they mentioned how you know therapy, meditation, yoga, breath work, and even adaptogens like ashwagandha can help. And then, of course, to kind of feed off of what you were just saying about, about training, this can improve leptin sensitivity by decreasing your intramuscular triglyceride store. So in that, that's basically a fancy way. Intramuscular triglyceride is a fancy way of saying fat in the muscle. This can actually reduce your, your, your well, it can actually also, I was going to say insulin. It can reduce your insulin sensitivity, but it can also improve your leptin sensitivity. Absolutely. That's a great way to sort of bridge onto the next hormone that we focus on, which is insulin. So tell us a little bit about insulin, what it is, how it works, where it's produced. Insulin is it's a very uh, important hormone in the body that for years we all thought it was just related to the metabolism of carbs. So when you eat sugar, you eat carbs, you produce insulin in the pancreas. And when, when you don't have enough or you don't produce enough, it's called diabetes and then if you produce any, you have to inject insulin. But if you produce too much, which is uh, insulin resistance, and it happens in type 2 diabetes, will cause many, many different things in the body, many issues with your metabolism. But the main issue is really to understand the complications of having that hormone that elevated. It is directly related to fat storage. So it's not only the, the hormone to metabolize the energy in carbs, but it's also the hormone directly related to store fat. And the way, the simple way to see this is if you eat a lot of carbs, you produce a lot of insulin. If you don't use all those carbs, because you're not exercising and, and you continue eating them, the body has a mechanism of storing that energy. And one way to store the energy is in fat for eventual use. So that can be a mechanism, you know, forever. You can store fat forever. And that's how you see people just gaining and gaining weight and storing fat. The thing is that that fat in particular is very inflammatory and is directly related to all the complications from, from fat storage. And the number one is cardiovascular disease and blocking the artery because it will alter the, the metabolism of triglycerides, fat in your bloodstream, the cholesterol, and it will deposit eventually in your arteries and that deposit eventually will grow, will narrow the artery, get inflamed and occlude the artery. And that's where the strokes come or the heart attack comes, or occlusion of the arteries in the legs, which is what I open every day, occurs. And, uh, and of course, erectile dysfunction from blocking the arteries and blocking the arteries in the retina and blindness or blocking the arteries in the kidneys and end up in dialysis. So all that is the same mechanism of action, which is related significantly to insulin. Right. And we focus on a number of different lifestyle habits, particularly exercise protocols and nutrition to improve insulin sensitivity. And of course, with each individual, according to their age, their background, their lifestyle, there's a 
you know, the specificity is, is, is endless. I want to, I want to share a little analogy for people to understand insulin, how it functions. I think it's a great way to sort of paint the picture of how it works. But first I'll start with this. So exercise, for example, improves insulin sensitivity by increasing glucose or sugar or carbs uptake via these molecular mechanisms. So there's a boost in GLUT4 concentration. GLUT4 translocation to cell membrane occurs, capillarization of skeletal muscle, reducing intramuscular triglycerides, which we spoke about, and increased B cell activity. So I know that sounds super scientific, but here's the analogy that helps people make sense of what this means and how insulin works. So imagine that your body is a train station. Okay, imagine your body is a train station. To optimize the flow of people, or in this case, the metabolism of nutrients, the conductors of the train station, insulin, need to properly signal the opening and closing of doors on the train, which are the GLUT4 receptors on muscle, to allow just enough people in at just the right time. Okay, so the GLUT4 receptors sit on your muscle membrane and they basically allow sugar to come in. Insulin orchestrates that. So let's return to the train station for a second. So the more that your trains move, So the more that you exercise and the more physically active you are, the better job your conductors can do. So you have higher insulin sensitivity. An added bonus is that this movement puts a greater demand on your train station to upgrade its infrastructure and hire more conductors. So these are your hypothetical train station upgrades awarded by movement. There's more conductors, meaning increased B cell or beta cell activity for insulin. There is more trains, meaning you know you gain muscle, you see an increase in capillarization and a boost in the GLUT4 concentration, and optimal use of space happens as well. Optimal use of space in the train carts. There's lower intramuscular triglycerides taking up that space. So to protect your train station from wear and tear, which is like sarcopenia or the natural loss of muscle mass as we age, lower testosterone, injuries, etc., combine resistance training trains move more quickly, right? And aerobic training, the trains travel further. And now in this imaginary train station, supply always meets demand so long as you demand health. That's, <laughs> that's my analogy <laughs> for insulin. Well, the analogy, the analogy is perfect. I mean, and, and, and that is why I think that people my age or after 40 should lift weight because all you mentioned happens in the muscle. Insulin sensitivity improves in patients who have healthy muscles. That's why just running or just cycling is not enough, in my opinion. Of course, cardiovascular health you need. You need your heart healthy. It's a muscle itself. And it, of course, improves a lot of, of the vascular health and the endothelium. But lifting weight and having normal muscles will have, uh, will occur In the muscle, all you said, all the analogy you mentioned, which is very nice because the mechanism is is extremely complex, Uh, you have to have healthy muscles and you have to lift weight. And and, and lifting weight will gain muscle mass but will make you lose fat, believe it or not. Not only jogging and not only walking, it's combining both lifting weight and walking or jogging or, or cycling or swimming that will improve that insulin sensitivity, which should be essential within normal limits to have a very normal metabolism overall, not only on carbs, but also on fats. Yeah. And one thing that we're very big on is uh, with, with people that we help through our courses, everything that we do, one thing that we're very, very big on is maintaining as much muscle on your body and even gaining muscle as you make these lifestyle changes and isolating fat as a fuel source. You want to maintain as much muscle as you have because of its ability to help you improve your insulin sensitivity and because of all the organs, all the tissues in the human body, muscle is the most metabolically active. It burns the most calories at rest. And so if you can maintain or even gain muscle while you lose weight from fat, it's easier to maintain your goal weight long-term because you're burning calories just having your body maintain itself. There's a lot of people that will take that will make extreme changes 
they'll establish an extreme amount of caloric deficit. They'll do these crazy changes. They, 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 they see a, a dramatic spike in cortisol, increased rates of gluconeogenesis. So muscle gets converted to sugar just so the body can maintain itself and the neuro, the central nervous system can maintain itself and doesn't get exhausted. And so you see an excess loss of muscle mass. The problem is, sure, muscle is super dense. It has a lot of weight to it. And if you lose a lot of muscle, you lose a lot of weight. But what we believe in is in long-lasting positive lifestyle change in long-lasting weight loss. And we know that muscle plays an essential role. So we have to maintain it. So we teach people how to do this and how to maintain their, their, their metabolic rate very, very high. Not only for, for insulin sensitivity, but as you said, for other hormones, testosterone in men and women, growth hormone, and also healthy bones. Remember that aging, the bones get weak with, with a good muscle mass, the chances of osteoporosis and fractures decreases significantly. So you have to have muscle mass and keep it as healthy as possible throughout life and especially after 40 or 50 or 60. And one thing I want to add as well is, is one thing I, that gets people excited is when I, when I mention how with more muscle, you can, you can basically store more glucose. What, what that means is, you know, when you have a lot of muscle on your body, you can ha have carbs and it won't have the same impact versus having less muscle on your body because you can soak up these carbohydrates. Your insulin sensitivity is so much higher. Like, if I eat a bowl of pasta versus someone that weighs exactly as much as I weigh, but they have way less muscle mass and more fat, it's a completely, completely different effect. It's a completely different effect. It's actually one of the reasons there's people that skip leg day. You know, they don't train their legs. They just train their upper body because they want to look good in the upper body. But the legs are amazing because the legs have these huge muscles that can store so much carbohydrate. So that gets people excited because I say, hey, look, if you improve your musculature, you can have carbs every once in a while. I think everyone has to be flexible, you know, for the long term. You can have your carbs. You're not going to feel tired. You're not going to feel like crap. You're going to feel great. In fact, it's going to fuel your next workout. Exactly. And, and not only that, but you're going to store them in your, in your muscle and not as fat in your belly, which happens with people that have no muscle mass. Yeah. yeah. Eating the same amount of carbs, eating the same pasta. And then it has a dramatic exactly the influence. Same. And then you, they, see, they see a rise in blood glucose. They overproduce insulin. They see a, a drop in blood glucose. Now they're hungry and hungry and hungry and hungry. They have low energy. They have brain fog. They don't sleep well. They're very sensitive to stress. And so we help these people address all these different lifestyle variables with all the tools, tips, and tricks we have based on the best and latest science. But I believe now there's actually one last cortisol. We've talked about it a bunch here and there indirectly, but let's talk a little bit about cortisol just to sort of wrap this up. If we can speak a little bit about half cortisol. Just, just, yeah, not too long. Cortisol is a stress hormone and it's a mechanism that the body has to produce when, when you're at stress. And we have to differentiate acute stress from chronic stress and both will produce cortisol. In acute stress, anything, you know, an accident or something that scares you or, or something that you have to make it quick decision, you will produce a cortisol and a bunch of things will happen immediately and you're going to be ready to run, ready to fight, uh, ready to act, focus on something. And that's acute stress and that's an acute response to cortisol, which is great. It's healthy, is, right? That's a healthy mechanism. response. It's a healthy response. It's an emergency response and, and we're ready to make decisions and, and to run or fight or whatever needs to be done. But if you are in continuous stress, you're going to continuously produce cortisol. The body doesn't know that it's a chronic stress. It just knows that it is stress. And the cortisol is being produced, and it has all these terrible consequences and in metabolism overall, altering the insulin metabolism and, and eventually storing fat and causing many other different things, uh, lowering your Immune, immune response, for example, and all those bad responses to chronic stress will cause health issues, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, poor sleep, and it's a vicious cycle because poor sleep will cause increase in cortisol. So to try, try to control stress or chronic stress will control chronic cortisol release and will definitely improve health overall. Right. And that sounds obvious, I'm sure, to everybody tuning in. But where this, where, where we have to really respect the specificity is when it comes to a particular individual's 
elevated cortisol levels, you have to address every, you have to get really nitpicky about all their li- different lifestyle habits and how they live their lives and the decisions that they make and the environment that they expose themselves to and their, and their workflows. And this sounds obvious to anyone, you know, you, you, you don't deal with stress, you see elevated cortisol, there's all these problems, but it's important to note the vast spectrum of things that you can accommodate to help someone deal with their cortisol or to lower their cortisol levels. There's so much that you can do. Everything from, I mean, I think the most accessible way to influence your cortisol and to, to, to stress less is to pay attention to the way that you breathe. A lot of people are chronic mouth breathers, automatically puts you in a slightly more sympathetic state, but that's a compound interest. You know, you mouth breathe chronically and now you're slightly more sympathetic, more stressed, more in a ready to deal with danger state which obviously chronically isn't very good, right? Immediately, nasal breathing, and you see a dramatic change. For people that are chronic mouth breathers, they can do things like you know mouth taping at night so that they guarantee that at least one third of their day, they're in a more parasympathetic state, especially when it counts most during sleep. But then there's everything from, you know, I've personally helped people even in their 50s, make complete like radical lifestyle shifts. They went from working underneath someone to entrepreneurship because it gave them more freedom. It gave them the chance to experience something that gave them joy and to be flexible. And so there's 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 everything along that spectrum, right? The kind of shifts you can help someone make to help them address chronically elevated levels of cortisol. So I think that's a <laughs> I think that's a good way to sort of wrap this up. It's incredible. It's already been an hour with you here on the show. I think we need to have you back wow. as a as a consistent, you know, appearance. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about when you talk about health and, and, and longevity and health improvement, of course, uh, you know, losing weight. And and it's not as easy as just eat less to more exercise or it's, it's, it's very complicated. And then when you mix them with medication and not only lifestyle changes, you can really gain a lot and you can really improve overall chronic conditions. So that's why I think that I enjoy very much working with you from your point of view or in exercise physiology and, of course, up to date in science and trying to do biohacking and putting all this new stuff together. With functional medicine, with Patricia Haim, she's a physician and, and brings all this new world of functional medicine that most physicians really don't understand and many make jokes about it. And I think it's a very serious specialty that deals with the cause and the root cause of many issues. Plus conventional medicine with regular medication and drugs and conventional treatment for the complications. Putting all those together in a in in a, what in my opinion is a dream team that I call hunger and hormones team or Ambre Hormonas, which we found two words to put all these ideas together, how to deal with hunger and how to deal with the hormones related to hunger, satiety, stress. And, and metabolism overall that's that's our that's our inspiring project that it's in the works and i appreciate you doing all this podcast and talking about what we do for a living and i appreciate very much you inviting me to talk about metabolic health we can talk hours and hours and hours about this and the more i read the more i learn and the more i read the more i would like to go to medical school to teach medical students about this. The more I read about nutrition, the more I know that I know nothing about it. And I knew nothing about it. And and every day we learn new stuff. Years ago, eggs were bad. Now eggs are great. Years ago, you had to eat cereal with sugar and milk. Now, God forbid, you should not eat sugar mixed with cereals and milk and so forth and so on. So so it's it's a great time and this day and age of, of health and, and obesity epidemics and diabetes worse than ever and more cardiovascular death than ever, that we are right on board uh, together to, to deal with all these issues. So I'm very happy to be here. I congratulate you on your podcast, on your career, and I'm very proud that we are partners because there's a lot of stuff out there that we can do together, and each of us have a different view and a different view, not only from our backgrounds, also a different view from our difference in age, which is, uh, it's nice to be partners with a guy so young. And I, I'm very young as well, but uh, younger <laughs> than I am. 
So very nice to be here. I wish you the best. I thank you very much for inviting me. It's a honor because you've had, um, I'm a fan of your podcast. You've had so many uh, incredible people, really incredible people in your podcast that I think this podcast, uh, your career, it's, it will improve significantly if you continue doing the job the way you're doing it. So let, let's keep it out and let's keep working on this. Wow, such such lovely words and, and such a great way to really wrap this up and bring it all together. And, and thank you. Thank you for those words. And and I'll say that, you know, it's having you on the show, it's it's been way overdue, but I'm glad that I had the chance to practice so I could host you and really have a, a worthwhile conversation. So You're a pro. Yeah. <laughs> you are a pro, I'm telling you. Well, I'll I'll say this. For the next podcast, I'm Hasadong Español for our for our Latin American audience, student Spanish. And if anyone has any questions for Dr. Roy, please submit them. Please send them to me via DM at Andres Prichel. Most of you guys already follow me. The links are in the podcast description if you want to reach out and ask some questions. And we'll have Dr. Roy back on the show very, very soon. And uh, Dr. Roy, if you could just finish off with, you know, where... And by, wait, before I get there, you said that, we're, that we have all this in the works. We've, we've done a lot. We've written a book. We've made a video course, uh, two video courses. Uh, we've, we, we have amazing content. We offer an incredible service. I think the reason why you say this is in the works is because naturally, we're very ambitious people and we want to keep bringing this forward. But people, I want people to know that they can, in fact, get to work with us if they're inspired to. But Dr. Roy, where can people find us if they want to get to work with Abre Monas? They can find us in Spanish, in Twitter, hambre at hambre y hormonas, in English at hunger and hormones. We will start doing more in English. We did a podcast about it in English. Now we're going to have to do one in Spanish for sure. I, I accept that invitation already. We're going to do a similar podcast in Spanish. But uh, they can find us in hambre hormonas in, in Instagram, Dr. Roy, D-R-R-O-I, in Instagram, which is myself, and uh, Twitter, Ambre Hormonas in, in Twitter, Facebook, the whole you know, social media platform. We have a book uh, that we sell. It's on sale in, in Amazon called Ambre Hormonas. And soon a partnership with a company who's uh, developing very fast and very well in the health industry in Latin America, which is called Cubit. So we're we're growing, and of course, we see patients on a daily basis. Not only that I see patients in my office, but Andres, Patricia, and I see patients, uh, and we have a program that is not only to lose weight, it's to be healthy and learn all, learn all these tricks to, to live a better life, longer, and of course, healthy and lose weight as well, which is called Ambre. It's a program called Ambre Hormonas in Spanish and Hormone Hormones in English. So welcome to be part of the program, and uh, and we, as I, as you said, we're still improving our program for our patients and, and trying to reach more people with an online course, with a book, and now with a company that that's hopefully growing significantly in the health world. We're going to be part of that. Yeah, and one thing, the last thing I want to add is we also do the remote physiological monitoring. We set people up with advanced wearable devices and a lifestyle data analytics platform, so we can see measurable improvements in lifestyle change. So we get to monitor people no matter where they are in the world. In fact, we don't really see many of our clients in person. We we love to, but we have the honor to help people no matter where they are because we can monitor exactly what's happening to their physiology with our devices. So that's a little added bonus. Wow, Dr. Roy, we covered so much, but I'm excited to get you back on the show very soon. And uh, thank you for joining us. What a pleasure and an honor. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you so much and, and keep up the good work.